Welcome back to New Books in German Studies, a podcast channel that belongs to the New Books Network. My name is Michael O'Sullivan uh, from Marist College, and I'm one of the channel's many co-hosts. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Jennifer A. Miller to the show. We will discuss her new book, Turkish, Turkish Guest Workers in Germany, Hidden Lives and Contested Borders, 1960s to 1980s, published with the University of Toronto Press in 2018. Dr. Miller is Associate Professor of History at Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, Jennifer, I thought uh, we might start out by uh, asking you to share a little bit about your professional biography and a little bit about how you came to be passionate both about German studies and about the particular topic of this book. Yeah, sure. I actually was a German major undergrad and had a chance to study abroad in Germany my junior year, and then I moved back to Germany after I graduated, and then I got a master's in women's and gender studies, so I've really not been in history that long, and I switched over to history for the PhD, um, and then I was able to sort of use my German and my German background to really sort of dive in um, to this topic. And one of the things I noticed when I was living in Germany was, was what a large impact the Turkish community had just on life in Germany and a lot of conversations about Germany. And a lot of the history books weren't really discussing it. It was mostly covered in anthropology and sociology and um, cultural studies. And I just wondered why it just seemed to be, you know, sort of glossed over in a lot of the history books. And... And it wasn't that it was too recent a history, because there were plenty of books on 1989, for example. Um, so I just sort of felt like it was something I wanted to know more about and, and sort of more include more in the national narrative of German history. Great. That sounds wonderful. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed reading the book, and I thought the introduction particularly was a, a great introduction uh, for me I've read a few things uh, in the field, but I'm not a you know not a specialist in um, the history of German Turks or or the guest worker program. So I was wondering if you could um, discuss a few of the things you had in the introduction, uh, and I think this might also help any uh, of our audience members who also aren't specialists. So uh, to start, I just thought uh, you did a really wonderful job contextualizing how. The guest worker programs, in particular the Turkish guest worker programs, uh, how they fit into uh, a longer history of the use of foreign labor in Germany. Sure. Um, I mean, I feel like they fit into sort of two different histories. One, you know, the national narrative of foreign labor in Germany that has gone back to the 1800s with um, Polish workers and Eastern European workers and the mining industry through the darker history of you know, forced slave labor and foreign workers in the Nazi era. And then, so the second larger history it fits into is um, the supranational level, all the migration occurring in a post-war period, whether it be post-colonial migration or um, guest workers going not just from Turkey to Germany, but from Turkey to France, and workers going to Sweden even, and Austria and Switzerland, and it was a, it was a sort of a European-wide phenomenon. There were even contract workers going to Eastern Europe, you know, like to, to East Germany, for example. So it really fits into many narratives here. The Cold War, um, 
economic rebuilding, guest worker programs, labor migration, labor activism. You know, it really sort of intersects a lot of these larger discussions. And um, another thing that uh, struck me both about the introduction and the book that I really appreciated is that you were often very careful to uh, differentiate that uh, the term, uh, you know, Turkish or German Turk or Turkish guest worker, and that there were, uh, first of all, different eras of Turkish migration in Germany, and that also um, people of Tur Turkish uh, or who originated in the country or the Republic of Turkey, uh, that they came from a lot of different, uh, a diversity of backgrounds and geographic locations. Yeah. Absolutely. So I was wondering if you could, uh, you know, offer some of those differentiations for our, our audience. And this is super tricky, I think, for a lot of people in the field because it's, you need some sort of shorthand so that people can read your book, you know. On the other hand, you need to be really sensitive to making these sort of labels and groups and categories that are all obviously constructed for ease. Um, so there are asylum seekers moving to Germany um, who are fleeing Turkey maybe because they're Kurdish, they're Alevis, there's um, students you know, studying abroad in Germany from Turkey throughout the 20th century. Um, there's workers in, in Germany invited from private businessmen who were not a part of this official program. Um, there's people who came as tourists and stayed you know, um, illegally. There's so many different ways to sort of figure out you know, how to discuss this population. And I, I don't want to end up sounding like the politicians of the 80s who just say foreigners. So it's, it's really tricky because on the one hand, you have to engage in that larger conversation that is somehow about non Germans, in quotes, and on the other hand, you have to be careful sort of painting a realistic picture of who these people actually are and where they're from. Um, some scholars have gotten around this by saying people of Turkish citizenship, or so that it's, you know, national origin is a way to say it, but um, I think I have sort of a section in the introduction called, I think, you know, who are Turks, that tries to address some of that. Um, I've also tried to sort of undo what people picture as a, you know, a, a typical Turk in Germany. One of the women I sort of feature in my introduction is someone I met who you know, has never worn a headscarf and who was very fashionable in the 60s in her early photos, um, who has short hair and you know, owned her own business. And she's not at all some of the, um, the descriptions you would read about um, that were popular in the 80s about how Turkish women especially wives living in Germany were sort of trapped in their situation and unemployed and some of them were um, illiterate and were sort of suffering in their situation. And it was sort of a very negative um, portrayal of this life. And when I met this particular woman, she sort of blew all of that out of the water for me. And I really wanted to sort of feature the handful of people like her in this book who were sort of, excited about the chance to go to Germany and had sort of their own agendas for it and didn't really feel like victims necessarily of the program, if that makes sense. Um, and also, I think the sort of identification yeah. of the Turk is inseparable from a Muslim identity, I feel like sort of came a little bit later in the narrative, um, especially after 
um, the sort of rise of terrorist attacks in Europe more recently, the idea that this is sort of a unified, monolithic Muslim community um, is not necessarily the case. I feel like a lot of German officials even saw this group as Mediterranean, would group them together um, with Greeks, for example, um, still with sort of negative stereotypes of their behavior and often giving them sort of a hyper-masculinity, but not really sort of seeing them as, as culturally different just based on religion. Yeah, that's really interesting. And just building on uh, one of the comments you're making there, I was, and also given what you mentioned in your biography, that you have a background in uh, women's gender and sexuality studies, I thought you made sort of an interesting point in the introduction about the ways in which this book contributes to the history of female guest workers, first of all, that uh, often hasn't been written. And also the way that uh, a lot of these women who you study uh, really their their histories are intertwined with uh, you know West German women's history in ways that, that many of us German historians don't always think of. Uh, and so I was wondering if if you um, had any comments about that. Sure. I mean, for those who read German, there's an excellent book just on female guest workers called Das Arbeiterinnen. Um, mm-hmm. By Monica Mathis, that is a whole you know monograph just on you know, female guest workers. That's really excellent, and it talks about workers from you know, not just from Turkey but from Spain and and other countries. But I, I feel like the women's history part or the, you know, the gender history part is sort of a key aspect of the guest worker program that I think many may not realize um, because a lot of the women who work German women or ethnically German women. Um, some of the trap I fell into, um, who began, you know, working in factories during World War II were highly encouraged to go, you know, build nuclear families as a way to create this sort of stable democracy. That was one of the political rhetoric of the 1950s was that that Germany needed to restore family values, nuclear families, a male breadwinner model, um, be more pronatalist. And a good way to do that was to get these women not working and then to sort of replace them with foreign men or foreign women. And that sort of comes up with some of the labor disputes I discuss later in the book about sort of what is men's work and what is women's work and what is foreign men's work, you know, and, and foreign women's work. So, you know, some of the post-war cultural social rebuilding that Germany went through really relied on guest workers to create nuclear families for ethnic Germans, if that makes sense. And that's a connection I think a lot of people might might miss by studying maybe just one or the other of these issues. So Jennifer, uh, just listening to um, some of the things you had said in one of your earlier uh, answers, you had mentioned the 1980s as being an era where a lot of the rhetoric about guest workers was defined. And it's interesting because you do seem to talk a few po- at a few points in the book about Helmut Kohl, his rhetoric about West Germany not being a country of immigration. So I was wondering if at this point you could talk a little bit about the role of the 1980s in shaping some of these images and how your book in many ways pushes back on that. Sure. I think, you know, my, bush, my book um, pushes back on a few narratives. Uh, one that I sort of mentioned earlier that that the guest worker experience was just solely negative, you know, and had no, you know, redeeming experience 
experiences for those involved. Um, you know, and second, I think the narrative has gotten sort of miscast um, in the 80s by not necessarily scholars, but maybe some politicians or policymakers who would sort of frame the debate by saying, you know, why why are these people still here? Um, and you know, why why do they outstay their welcome? And without sort of realizing the steps taken along the way on the part of German officials and German employers to, for example, lengthen the, the contracts, they changed the treaty in 1964 to allow guest workers to stay longer and allow them to bring their families, things that they had previously said they wouldn't do. And so they also paid the passage for these workers to come to Germany, but would not did not pay the passage for them to go back home. So there were several steps along the way, decisions made in the early 60s that sort of created the situation they got in the 80s, and then they weren't really sort of willing to sort of look at their role in that, in my opinion. And so sort of looking at these smaller decisions or internal memos and discussions on the part of the Germans, I think sort of illuminates parts um, of this history that I think other people might have sort of missed along the way, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the you know, dominant general arguments of the book is that there are no neat narratives if you look at things mm -hmm. carefully. And I really appreciated your attempts to, you know, frequently take existing narratives and complicate them and add ambiguities. It's not just the coal narrative you're complicating. It seems like there's a lot of different types of narratives that you're complicating. And one that you really hear a lot is one of these narratives that you complicate, that is, is this narrative that West Germany developed these parallel societies, right? That German guest workers formed their own separate subculture. And that is one that you push back on. Could you talk a little bit about this notion of parallel societies? And also, again, how you try to Sure, I mean, I'm, I'm not really a political scientist or, you know, a sociologist or anthropologist, but my understanding of parallel societies was sort of a, you know, live and let live, um, look at immigration, sort of allowing um, these immigrant societies to sort of develop on their own in Germany with, with a few caveats. There were steps taken to prevent um, ghettoization and to prevent neighborhoods from reaching too high a percentage um, of foreign residents. So there were some sort of urban planning steps taken in those, in those forms. Um, I think also one of the scholars made the argument that the introduction of the satellite dish did a lot to support um, parallel societies because it allowed a lot of people to basically just watch church TV and sort of live in a more expat life um, through their access that satellite TV provided. Um, I think maybe my contribution to this narrative is to sort of talk about housing choices. Is that maybe what you were hinting at? Yeah, that. You know, yeah. there were there were Turkish guest workers who attempted to live within the communities and people just wouldn't rent to them. Um, their, you know, contracts and their passage was paid to Germany after they were accepted. Their visas were supplied and their housing was supposed to be supplied as well. And they put them in these large dormitories. Um, and it really wasn't necessarily nefarious. Germany lost so much housing with the aerial bombings. It's, you know, the main thing that Germany lost 
was housing. They had a severe housing shortage for everyone. Uh, so putting workers in barracks, um, dorms, hastily constructed, supposedly temporary housing wasn't ideal, and it wasn't really their initial plan, and it was really sometimes a matter of circumstance, but it had long-range effects in sort of um, separating these groups um, and, and treating them poorly. It's the only Germans they knew were these dormitory managers who could be quite harsh um, in their employers, then they didn't really set up the sort of necessary social interactions you, I think you need um, for integration. And, and also it wasn't really designed to be an integration program, really. Um, so a lot of social outings weren't really organized or, or available. Something I talk about later in the book is, um, you know, bars and nightclubs that would say, you know, no foreigners allowed and, and, and sort of resistance in that way as well. Yeah, so I think at this point it would be um, interesting to start to look into the some of the chapters of the book. And the way you structure the early parts of the book is you kind of, in a way, recreate uh, the experience of guest workers by looking at what it was like when they were first being recruited and making the decision to come to West Germany, and then what it was like to be in transit, what it was like to try to find housing once they were here. So in chapter one, you uh, uh, title chapter one, uh, The Invitation, and you create this triangle in some ways that I think exists uh, then throughout the book, but is very prominent in this chapter, a triangle between the West German state, and in some cases, West German employers, the Turkish state, and then the guest workers themselves. And in some ways, you know, they weren't, the, they were all operating to a certain extent in their, in their own interest. And certainly you point out how guest workers didn't always conform to the expectations that other people had of them, that they expressed their agency within this triangle. But I thought uh, it would be interesting to hear you talk about uh, how you conceived of this triangle as you were writing it and how you kind of uh, came up with that way of uh, negotiating this chapter. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It was, it was very important to me that this narrative began in Turkey long before arrival because the experience began long before arrival for most of these applicants. I mean, they would be involved with Turkish officials, I'm sorry, German officials, or German employers maybe for at least a year before even getting to Germany. So I really wanted to sort of shake up that narrative as well, that they sort of, you know, arrive and then their story begins. Um, I also wanted to move away from sort of the state level, you know, Treaty of Rome, EEC narrative that, you know, that the politicians were in charge and the Labor Bureau was in charge. Because um, there are so many other people involved in this narrative, um, you know, the employers would argue with the state-level employment agency about, you know, when the trains should arrive and who should be there to greet them and, and what days they should arrive and, and, and you know, please don't have them come on a Saturday when, when no one can be there to pick them up. And um, all of these sort of smaller decisions, I argue, sort of cumulatively add up to a relationship that sort of sets the tone, I think, for the next sort of 40 years. Um, there are also workers who um, 
we were not just, you know, led by the nose by, by German officials. You know, if they had a way to sort of cut the line or pass a medical exam by borrowing someone else's urine or, you know, um, you know, that they, they were able to make choices and sort of exert their, their wishes as well. And uh, one of my favorite stories comes from a man who says that he was determined to have a clean shave when he got off the train. And so he, you know, he just used some, some like soda, you know, like a drink, a beverage that he had, like a Fonta sort of thing, just to make sure he could shave before he got off the train. Because he was like, well, maybe there'd be some cute German girl there or something, you know? So um, I was really lucky to stumble upon this collection of interviews that was done in the early 90s and the mid 90s by a Turkish man who runs the archive in Cologne, Germany. Um, it used to be called the Documentation Center and Museum for Migration from Turkey, and now it's called the Documentation Center and Museum for Migration to Germany, sort of trying to be more all-encompassing. And those interviews, there's only about, say, 24 of them, and so it's not really a comprehensive picture, but it's enough to sort of let you know what these people were thinking about their experiences. And I think that sort of personal anecdotal level has been something we haven't had access to in this narrative either. Yeah, and you, you have, uh, it really, those interviews really allow you to capture the everyday experience a little bit. I mean, one thing that jumped out at me was your description of, and I can't remember if it was in this first chapter or another one of the chapters, but the, the medical exam and how uh, that was viewed as a very traumatic experience by some guest workers. Uh, the audience might be interested to hear a few of the details about that too. Yeah, I mean that's that's something I noticed in the interviews because you know I'm a historian and I'm listening to interviews that I I didn't conduct and I'm I'm sort of fortunate I think that a you know a male Turkish man interviewed these people who I think would be more willing to tell him things you know in, in Turkish and to a man that they you know like about their sex lives for example or dating or um, sort of these more intimate details I don't think that they would have necessarily opened up to me about and it struck me that 35 years after the fact things that they chose to talk about I mean, they could have spoken about anything um, in terms of their guest worker experience and thing, every single person started like talking about this medical exam and talking about the train ride um, and very little of their interview was really sort of about things they did at work which is more what I was expecting um, they just sort of really felt, um, I felt like it was a cultural clash of, of, of modesty. You know, the idea for many Germans of sort of dress, undressing um, in a homosocial space, like, right? you know, all men undressing in the dressing room, all women undressing in the dressing room to be medically examined may not seem odd, might just seem very medical or clinical in a Western European setting, but it seemed very invasive and, and dehumanizing and, and, you know, maybe even traumatic to have to sort of really get undressed or, or to have to drop your pants and sort of be really examined all the way maybe through your anal cavity, you know, and your teeth and everything really was something that they maybe didn't expect or had never experienced. Um, one woman mentioned to me, you know, in a couple of interviews I did that, that some of the women had maybe not been to a doctor and had a you know a physical exam before, and so that's you know their first interaction with this guest worker program, the 
the first interaction with, with some of these Germans was, you know, sort of trying to confront this biological boundary of their bodies, and, and it was very intimate, for sure, and very, very memorable, but that's really what they highlighted in their interviews much later. So I think that's an important part of this narrative. If, if, if what we're trying to figure out is what is the relationship between Germany or Germans and this group of people, and, you know, and this is also something they all had in common, is this application process. Um, and this train ride. So if they came from um, cosmopolitan Istanbul or if they came from a village in Anatolia, this was one of the common experiences that all applicants had that could have created this new category of guest worker. Yeah, um, that, that part of the book was really interesting. And, uh, you know, since you did bring up the oral histories that you worked with, uh, obviously you mentioned that you had this set of oral histories that was already in the archive. I think you uh, conducted a, at least a, a few uh, interviews on your own as well. And I'm just curious, uh, you know, what your uh, thoughts were as an oral historian approaching this project. Uh, you know, how, how did you think about uh, using these oral histories? And also, um, how did uh, how did you feel uh, German Turks frequently responded to you coming in as an, as an American scholar, something of an outsider to talk to them about their experience? I mean, I feel like, I, you know, I only only have two interviews um, that I quoted in the book. Um, I, it was actually quite difficult for me to access, you know, the Turkish community because there were so many people who had sort of felt that they had already been the subject of studies, um, that they had already, you know, that they were sort of tired of being um, asked these questions, that they were sort of tired of talking about it. And I feel like the two who really did speak to me had a lot to say. I really sort of felt like I could be their outlet to sort of get their story out there. So it's really definitely a skewed sample in that sense. Um, the woman who features so prominently, I've chosen to name her Elith, um, really sort of began by having just freshly been interviewed by a Japanese journalist who she, whom she felt was quite aggressive and was like, why did you stay? And sort of blamed, she felt was blaming her. I wasn't you know, there for that interview, so I don't really know. How it happened, and um, she really sort of came across with wanting to set the record straight. And I think that's true. I think for a lot of oral histories, is that you have people recasting their narrative in the ways they wish it were, or not that it's false, but that they're choosing what they're going to relay to you, and they're choosing how to cast this narrative. And all you can do is sort of, you know, believe them and also contextualize it. And she really definitely as you'll notice in the book, emphasizes the choices she made and, and that she was happy and that it was the right choice and she didn't have any regrets. And I think she had sort of felt put upon by this more dominant narrative of the helpless Turkish woman. And she was really determined. Um, and I was happy to allow her that outlet, you know, in the book, even though I know it's probably not a majority story. Yeah, yeah. Um... The, the interviews really, uh, you know, and uh, especially this woman who you sort of focused on heavily throughout, it really does give you this, uh, you know, real uh, concrete feel of uh, everyday experience. Um, and so in any case, in these early chapters, you sort of um, go from invitation to the train ride uh, to, the, to the search for housing. 
And it seems like there were a lot of uh, contradictory messages that guest workers were receiving. You've you know, touched on this a little bit in some of your comments already, but I'm just curious if you could say a little bit more about what you feel uh, the long-term impact was of these, uh, say, contradictory messages guest workers received when they were being recruited and when they first arrived about what their role was going to be, how long they were going to stay, and so on. Can you give me an example to jog my memory of what you Yeah, it just seems like, uh, sorry, okay. that's probably too vague a question, but uh, it seems like there were some German employers who were insinuating to these guest workers that, you know, they could come to West Germany and make a life for themselves. On the other hand, the West German state kept emphasizing that this was going to be a, a temporary work program. Mm -hmm. uh, things like that seem to have real uh, long-term impacts for some of these problems that you have spoken about that cropped mm -hmm. up in the 1980s. I mean, you know, even the German state really felt like it had to compete for these workers against countries like, say, France, and that it was sort of losing out on some of the Southern European workers, and so it had to expand to to you know, to Turkey and North Africa, places it hadn't really considered before, and so you know, even the German state was was you know going to Turkey and making these announcements like we're so happy you're there, and you know maybe you know you could even date a German woman, and you know maybe you've heard of the famous sort of millionth guest worker arrives and you know receives a prize, or the ten thousandth guest worker arrives and and they have a big. Um, celebration for them and, and sort of that's why I chose to call it the invitation the first chapter to sort of really emphasize that they were pulling really hard um, for these workers and sort of saying how welcome they were and how much they needed them and then they arrive and they you know they're in some dormitory where they're treated poorly um, and they don't feel welcomed and they're you know excluded from nightclubs or housing opportunities so that's probably you know major contradiction uh, right there um, and the you know labor unions you know wanted them so that they couldn't undercut their wages but then also and sometimes didn't really want their input as well either so there, there were definitely times when I feel like people were trying to maybe you know manipulate their situation to to benefit themselves in the case of labor organizing or um, the idea that they needed the workers, but they were really prepared to sort of think about what, what that would mean, you know, to be in charge of all these people suddenly. Yeah, and um, so I thought maybe uh, we could uh, transition at this point to talk about the, um, the final couple chapters in the book. Um, in your fourth chapter, uh, really examines uh, guest workers who traveled from West Berlin to East Berlin uh, for, for entertainment and things like that. And this chapter uh, really struck a chord with me on a few levels. One a very personal level is a Polish uh, guy who I used to know growing up in Western New York uh, near Buffalo. Uh, he used to you know, before he uh, emigrated from uh, from Europe to the United States, he had emigrated from uh, Poland to Germany in the 1980s. And he, he had all these stories about how he used to go over to East Berlin mm -hmm. to have fun. 
Um, so it's kind of interesting to, to, to read about this in a scholarly mm -hmm. context. But uh, this chapter also just has all sorts of uh, issues layered into it. The Cold War, the East versus West divide, uh, the history of sexuality uh, really comes up here a lot. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about this chapter. Why were these Turkish guest workers uh, going mm -hmm. over to East Berlin Well, I mean, so one of the reasons I split the book in two was, I, you know, that first half is sort of setting the stage for the second part of the book, which is like, okay, what's, what's it like once they decided whether they realize it or not that they're living in, you know, West Germany? And in one of the interviews, um, one of the men interviewed mentions that his, you know, he's married an East German woman and brought her, you know, to Berlin, West Berlin with him, and they're happily married. And I thought, well, how is that possible? And so, you know, I mentioned that to a few people, or I had it, you know, in conference papers, People would always raise their hands afterwards and they're like, well, that's, that's, that wasn't done or that's not possible or how is that possible? And I was like, well, this man did it, you know? And so, you know, I went to the, the archives of the former Stasi holding the those of you who work in German studies know it as the you know, BTSU. And, and I said, well, what do you know about this? And they're like, well, everybody knows it happens, um, but you're never going to read about it. And so I thought, well, that's, that's perfect. And so, I think I was the first historian to ever look at these files. So I, you know, you, you don't get to do your own research and, you know, you don't get to sort of, you know, become a Stasi operative and, and plow through all the private, people's private information. You have to sort of describe to them what you're looking for, then an archivist finds it and redacts the files as needed. And so I'm not sure I, I really wanted to find this particular man's um, life story, you know, and, and find out if there had been anything reported on him. And, and I'm not sure I ever did, but I found the stories of many, many men crossing the borders into East Germany, and and I included just the ones that were the most relevant to my project. I'd love to go back and talk about some of the ones who weren't Turkish, for example. But um, yeah, where to begin? So these these men could get a day pass to to East Berlin, and they had their foreign passports, so they weren't West Berliners. Um, I think East Berlin didn't really want West Berliners to be able to cross that easily because they didn't, you know, they wanted to sort of be in control of the situation. But I think foreigners had a little more freedom because they were subject as Turkish citizens to sort of different treaties or negotiations with with East Germany than West Germany was. Um, and then they had their West German residence permits, so that allowed them back into West Germany really easily. So they, they were kind of in this um, bizarre situation where they – had a lot more freedom to cross this border than I think people realize. And they also, because they represented the West and Western consumer culture and disposable income and Western products, they were really popular um, in East Berlin in ways they weren't in the West. You know, women were suddenly interested in them, German women. And, you know, maybe they found them exotic because they themselves couldn't travel um, Maybe they were interested in the gifts they could bring them. Maybe they, you know, actually fell in love. It's, you know, it's hard to tell. Um, and, of course, I'm looking at it through the eyes of the Stasi because that's where the records are. You know, they, they tracked these men as they crossed the borders. They were super suspicious of them. They wanted to know if they were political actors. They wanted to know if they were trying to smuggle these women out. They were really worried that, that these women could marry out. Um, um, as I mentioned in the chapters, the Stasi flipped some of them to get them to report 
on other Turks crossing the border. And so, you know, there they were as agents, you know, collaborators with the East German state. It's really sort of crazy. Um, and, you know, all of it centers around these relationships, um, romantic or sexual or whatever, with these, with these German women. I, there's a lot more research, I think, to be done there that, that, I, that I wish I, I could have included in the book. Yeah, it sounds like one of those uh, incredibly rich, uh, you know, resources that you fall upon in, 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 the, in, the, in the process of doing a book like this. And uh, so when uh, these Turkish men were uh, sort of serving as agents for the Stasi, uh, you know, who are they, uh, or informants for the Stasi, I should say, who are they informing on usually? Was it usually their... Uh, their sexual partners, or was it other guest workers who were coming over? It's usually on, in the files I saw on on other guest workers. They were really worried about, you know, they had one man who was living in West Berlin, and they wanted to keep him living in West Berlin, so he could find out if other um, West Ber Berlin residing Turkish nationals were planning on trying to get their East German girlfriends out of East Germany you know, like an unlawful um, fleeing the Republic, which they didn't want. So it was mainly reporting on other Turkish men. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think some of the files did include, you know, how reliable were these East German women. Um, you know, they were also really concerned about these women's human morality and sexuality, you know, how Really, did they go around with these foreign men and with exchange partners and things like that? But the East German state had a bizarre obsession with, you know, banning pornography and and trying to be very moral for what was supposed to be extremely progressive, say especially for women. And I thought it was interesting, you know, how you described both the Stasi and the GDR state and how they viewed these Turkish men. How they, uh, whereas in West Berlin or West Germany, they were these Turkish men were usually interpreted as being Mediterranean or Eastern, whereas in East Berlin they were they were read primarily as at some points as Western first and foremost, or, or they were threatening mm -hmm. because they were Western or something like that. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they they're coming from you know, the East or the Orient, you know, in some of the rhetoric, and they're passing through Bulgaria, which is in Yugoslavia, which is kind of tricky, you know, in the trains because they have to sort of negotiate their ability to, you know, a Western country has to negotiate its ability to sort of use the rails and these, you know, behind the Iron Curtain. And then these men end up in, in the West um, from the East and then are cast as Western <laughs> in the East because they have their Mercedes and they have their you know, nice perfumes they can bring over and their Western goods and, and their Western salaries. Um, and it, it's also interesting because it kind of plays with their concept of masculinity. I mean, the guest worker program was kind of emasculating for many of these men because, of the, you know, the positions they're, they're put in is, you know, the lowest of the totem pole in the workplace and seen as undesirable in the society even though they're still sort of treated as a sort of threatening, over hypersexualized, hyper you know, Mediterranean man. And then they, 
in the East, they really talk about in some of their interviews about how desirable they were to East German women in this sort of a very sort of you know, virile, masculine way. And they even make comments about how they're better lovers than Germans and have you know, better stamina than German men. And, and so they sort of see it as sort of a regaining of their masculinity. And, and, and so it really plays on these tropes of, you know, what is a Western person, an Eastern person, a Mediterranean, you know, especially a Mediterranean male, um, and how these sort of constructed borders allow them to sort of take on these different roles depending on where they are or force them into different roles depending on where they are. Yeah, yeah, the piece of that about uh, the, the, you know, what these experiences meant to the self, the, the masculine self-image of these Turkish men was, was, was very fascinating as well. Um, and, you know, it does dawn on me that uh, there were probably, uh, you know, uh, West uh, other other West German men who maybe crossed over and and did similar things, but it seems like it, it had a different meaning to these uh, these Turkish guest workers than than it would have to, to other Germans, which is very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, Jennifer Evans has written on you know, men seeking um, homosexual liaisons and and how the border enabled some of that or. Um, there's definitely a lot of good studies on that. There could be more, of course. And I, I kind of feel like one of the weaknesses, maybe I shouldn't say this, one of the weaknesses of the chapter is that it it does focus so heavily on the sort of hyper-masculine, heterosexual relationships. And that, you know, I, I wonder if I should have pushed the archivist more to sort of look for, you know, women, Turkish women crossing the border and the relationships they were in or sort of um, sexual relations. You know, it's hard to know if, if, the bias comes from the files themselves, or so the archivist limited you know, view. It's 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 tricky to not be in the files yourself and know what's there. Yeah. Because um, I think you're right. I think that it was just tip of the iceberg. I mean, there must be more, mm-hmm. many more relationships happening. Well, that that's an interesting uh, segue, maybe into the fifth chapter of the book, where you really look at labor activism. And if the fourth chapter does tend to focus on these uh, sort of more heteromasculine experiences of guest workers, the labor activism chapter, I think, purposely tries to look at uh, the experience of uh, women guest workers. And mm-hmm. you talk about, uh, you know, a lot of this is happening, if I remember correctly, in the 1970s. And you mm-hmm. talk about the uh, Pierberg auto parts factory strikes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder maybe just for the audience, if you could, uh, you know, summarize and describe what happened at the Pierberg Auto Parts Factory first. Well, I think, you know, anyone in, in labor history would, will know that sort of the deindustrialization or the deindustrialization sort of you know, labor crises of the 70s brought on by the oil embargo um, was sort of this moment in, in labor activism worldwide that came really on the heels of activism from you know the late 60s and um and this obviously impacted foreign workers heavily because they were some of the first to sort of be let go um there was a major economic downturn in, in 67 that really um started restricting the importation of guest workers and in the 70s i argue it creates um a solidarity that that no one really expected and that 
these foreign workers were suddenly organizing with German workers in ways they hadn't really before because they started to have things in common. And one of the reasons I focused on these women is um, I think for women's labor activism, the, the wage differential, um, the disparity in wages, the idea of women's work um, really came to the fore in the early 70s. Um, so one of the things I point out is that the German constitution um, tried to be very progressive and eliminate the idea of women's work. But one of the ways they got around that was by saying instead that there's wage categories. That there's light work that's considered less you know, strenuous or less hard, and that's going to be paid less than, than you know, heavier work. And but you, when you look at who's sort of put in these categories, it would be sort of like um, you know, ethnic German women and four men together. That's what I meant by alluded to with that, you know, that emasculation of men or you know, and, and foreign women and sort of an intersectionality, sort of like being both women and foreign, you know, having the fewest rights. Um, so when you think about guestwork and labor activism, those who know anything about it will know about the Ford strike. That's the one that made the cover of Stern and the Spiegel and it just features this, you know, all these photos of these men protesting. And the Pierberg strike is, you know, there's been one couple big publications on it that, you know, you would only know about if you worked on this. Um, but it's not really part of the sort of major labor narrative of, of West German labor history. And I like the Pierberg strike because well, it's a series of strikes in which they're protesting this light wage category that they feel like they've unfairly gendered female. And um, and they also achieve a solidarity with male German workers who are in the higher wage categories in ways they haven't before. And my argument is that because they're acting as workers in Germany are acting, that they are becoming German workers in a sense, that they're sort of invested in the German labor system and the German wage system. They're making changes that help um, ethnic German women as well, and that is sort of a way they signal that they can stay in Germany, whether they realize it or not. So it's 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 both, I think, their major transition into permanency, permanent residency, and you know, sort of a redefinition from sort of guest worker to German worker. Yeah, that was clearly the I think the the main argument of the chapter, and uh, I I I sensed also you know, in the, in this section of the book, um, some pushback as well against maybe some of the second wave Western feminism and how these uh, women guest workers were initially perceived as some, you know, somehow being uh, less liberated or less progressive because they came from Turkey rather than from Western Europe. And I thought it was interesting how you demonstrated how it was these women guest workers who are at the forefront of challenging, you know, lower pay for women in the workplace rather than, than West German women. I mean, absolutely. I, I mean, you touched on so many things there I want to talk about. Um, I mean, I think anybody who <laughs> knows anything about second wave feminism knows that it's major flaws where it's sort of inability, inability to, to really form meaningful coalitions that sort of it blows apart the fiction of the category of woman. Like there's this unifying thing you can organize around because um, different factions of women were campaigning for different things, and they dealt with race terribly. Um, they they dealt with sexuality terribly, and and you 
you can't have a successful movement without successful coalitions, right? And so I think the Western feminist movement was no different in that it saw itself as led by sort of more middle class, working ethnic German women who knew what was best for women. And some of that comes across in that scholarship I mentioned, that they started publishing on these four foreign women. And I think I quote, maybe unfairly, this um, sociologist, you know, who's studying these foreign women in the 70s and saying that, you know, they're going to show them what emancipation is. They're going to show them, you know, how Western democracy is going to uplift these, you know, downtrodden, um, manipulated, Mediterranean women under the thumb of their husbands, and these Mediterranean women, especially some of the Greek women, are are like I'm I'm absolutely the boss of my house, and my husband cannot tell me um, from what to do. That's laughable, and you know maybe look at your situation as a you know as a wife in West Germany, um, and you know they they risk their jobs and they go on strike and. They're definitely more fed up and more willing to get arrested and risk deportation than a lot of the, the you know, ethnic German women who end up getting the credit for sort of fighting against this de facto women's pay that's going on. Um, and it, they don't really intersect enough, I, I don't think, with the narratives of the new left and labor movement and feminist movement. Great. And um, I think then you uh, really close the book with in some ways a look at, uh, I guess, I don't want to say the end of the guest worker program, right? Because in some ways the book uh, doesn't want us to see there as being a, a clean end, right? That the story um, keeps going. And uh, really, I think you stick to this theme of that the traditional narratives really need to be complicated. That uh, So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, the period of the, the 70s and 80s, where the guest worker program, at least formally, you know, is coming to an end from the perspective of the West German government. Uh, the politics, as we've talked about already, was clearly changing with the rise of Helmut Kohl's government in the early 80s and taking this real hard stance on immigration. Uh, maybe, you know, if you could talk to us a little bit about uh, what what are the complicated ways in which we should, should see this period of the 70s and 80s when in some ways things started to get somehow more controversial and difficult uh, in this relationship between West Germany and its uh, and its Turkish population. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 a really nice assessment of the completed. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, and I mean, officially, the program does end right. They with the oil crisis, really, of 73 and the economic downturn, it causes worldwide. They, they officially stop recruitment. They're like, OK, we. We cannot, um, you know, have any more. We can't just keep importing people in, into our workforce and, and, and have that be what's going to make production rise, right? They they start um, mechanizing things and, and workers, many workers come superfluous. Um, so the program does does end, and then they they have to sort of deal with family reunification, which they started allowing in 1964, and then it really booms. In 73, because of the sort of tricky residence permits and inability to leave and, and come back and worries about not seeing your family and trying to, you know, have a family life and reunifying your the Despite their efforts to limit 
this migration it kind of booms in the 70s out of this fear you know of not being able to go back and forth and then that kind of comes to a head in the early 80s as you know economies are doing worse and um so then they come up with the idea that they're going to pay people 10,000 marks to move back um to turkey something i recently read said red said that about half of them did go back um But then I think the coal rhetoric that you mentioned is sort of about starts, I think, grouping together and merging these categories, like merging all foreigners into one group of foreigners, giving them that title, Auslander, grouping together asylum seekers with guest workers, people who were invited with not invited people, um, um, trying to be more, more hardline, you know, just like Thatcher was, for example, and sort of end of social democracy in Western Europe and trying to sort of cut back on social services. All of this, you know, impacts these foreign workers. And I think their inability to kind of come to terms with the things I discussed in the first part of the book, you know, their roles in, you know, invitation and keeping people there, um, kind of make a lot of their claims about Germany not being an immigration state false. You know, um, Klaus Bada, the immigration historian, really kind of, put an end to that debate with his publications saying that Germany absolutely is a country of immigration. Um, and I, I really feel like if you can kind of keep that early 60s narrative in mind, you'll get a much better picture of what, you know, what the state ought to do in the 80s because of the roles they did play and aren't really talking about anymore. Well, Jennifer, I think uh, I've taken up a lot of your time at this point. so. I'd like to pose you uh, one final question here. And uh, after uh, doing this uh, very interesting book, I'm wondering uh, what you're thinking about, uh, you know, this book just came out. So uh, what you might be thinking about for the next project. I think for the next project, I really want to sort of pick up on some threads that I didn't really get to follow in this book. So um, one would be sort of getting back to the Stasi archive and sort of seeing what else is there um, so I feel like I really just just barely got into to understanding this the large sort of cityscape of, of movement and migration and porous borders of East Germany East Berlin and, and right now I'm working on a project on trying to sort of look at more closely that West German feminist movement I mentioned the labor strikes and and I found some some sources in which they on the one hand are there's these West German women complaining that they're being treated like, quote, guest workers and how they're using that as a sort of negative term and expression uh, shortcut to sort of talk about how they deserve to be treated better. And I think they're trying to say, in not so many words, they mean they need to be treated better than these foreigners. And in other cases in which they, they are um, looking at family unification in, in families in which German women, ethnic German women, have married foreign nationals and then want to have control of their children, whom the you know the fathers can take back to their home countries and then the, the mothers will lose their rights to. And then in these cases, they're also casting men in sort of negative light. Um, it's sort of what, how sort of including, you know, in both of these cases. Um, how you know including the, the the foreign worker narrative is really going to shake up 
ways, you know, the feminist movement in, in ways it hasn't before. Um, but it's that's like a pretty pretty big topic right now, so I I kind of need to to read a lot more and, and figure out what's being said and get in the archives and see see where I can go with this. But those are just a couple things that are kind of on my radar right now. Well, that sounds great, and that sounds like that'll that'll yield some uh, some more interesting publications. So, um, Jennifer, I thank you very much for, for coming on today. I really enjoyed t chatting with you about your book. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Michael. I really enjoyed it. All right, great. So you all have been listening to New Books in German Studies, a podcast that belongs to the New Books Network of Podcasts. We've been talking today with uh, Dr. Jennifer A. Miller about her book, Turkish Guest Workers in Germany. Hidden Lives and Contested Borders, 1960s to 1980s, published in 2018 with the University of Toronto Press. Thanks again, and I hope you'll tune in next time.